This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. If you spend time in New York City, you've probably seen them. Luxury apartment complexes that advertise as being green. Buildings like Tribeca Green and the Solaire, both in downtown Manhattan. The developers of the buildings are working from the premise that green is not only good for the planet, it's good for marketing. The idea is that upscale potential residents will be drawn to the idea of green living, even if the outlay for apartments is a little bit more, just as they've been drawn to hybrid vehicles that cost a little bit more than traditional cars. But for a lot of people in New York, the idea of paying extra for an environmentally sound apartment is outside the bounds of possibility. Many of the people who live in the city pay more than half of what they earn in rent, and they don't get much in the way of green cachet for their troubles. Today on the show, we're talking about one community, the Northwest Bronx, and how that neighborhood's being affected by the city's continually rising housing prices. We're also going to look at one effort to bring affordable housing and green housing development together in the form of one newly constructed building in the very same community. We'll hear a little bit more about that later. But first, let's get to know the neighborhood a little better. Gregory Lobo-Jost is the deputy director of the University Neighborhood Housing Program. They are a nonprofit organization sponsored in part by Fordham, whose goal is to create, preserve, and finance affordable housing in the neighborhood. I spoke to him about how the Northwest Bronx is being affected by New York's housing market and about why those of us who live below 161st should care. Gregory Lobo-Jost, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Tell me about the Northwest Bronx. What What's the area like? The Northwest Bronx is actually one of the densest parts of the city, definitely one of the densest parts of the city outside of Manhattan. I guess the Grand Concourse is the most famous road in the Bronx, but also goes through the Northwest Bronx. It was kind of designed as the Champs-Élysées of New York City. Um, And for the working class folks living down in the Lower East Side, this was a place that you could move out of the old law tenement housing and come to the Bronx and live in these beautiful big apartments starting, I guess, mostly in the 1920s. Those buildings are still around today, and they're kind of the the basis of what the Northwest Bronx looks like. Um, Five-story walk-ups, six, seven-story elevator buildings, pretty nice housing stock. Uh, You've got a lot of homes mixed in, uh, one, two, three, four-family homes, that are in, you know, a variety of conditions. Some of them are in better condition than others. So a lot of the housing stock is older. Like the rest of the city, any vacant land is being developed at this point. Nothing's sitting around. People are building whatever they can build, whether it's three-family houses or, you know, apartment buildings. So that's kind of what it looks like in terms of the housing. In terms of the residents who live here, it's primarily, you know, working poor, working class New Yorkers. And this is uh, one of the things we've talked about at a a recent study we did talking about how the number of neighborhoods where the working poor can afford to live in New York City is shrinking. And the Northwest Bronx is still one of those neighborhoods where they can afford. It hasn't fallen to any gentrification pressures yet. But still, you know, the rents are not so cheap that people can easily afford it. People here, because they make less money, are, are often paying half of their income on rent. That's kind of the norm around here. But the housing stock is is decent. It's, you know, as opposed to the South Bronx, where a lot of things were burned down or torn down, and there's a lot of newer houses and row houses that were built. Um, you know, that's not the norm up here. We've got the older housing stock, and a lot of it needs repairs. And that's kind of when, you know, when, when a community group is able to, to take over a building, they're going to need a decent amount of money to kind of keep it up in, in good condition. What would people be surprised about in this area that 
if they were just thinking about, you know, the Bronx as the Bronx is burning Bronx. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very vibrant community. There's it's extremely diverse. I think Queens gets all the publicity in terms of being the really diverse part of New York City. Um, but we did some census research and this was this is now going back seven years ago, the 2000 census. Uh, I think almost every single country on the census form is represented in the Northwest Bronx. And, you know, it's predominantly in terms of immigrants, the Dominican population, I think they're about half the immigrants. But other than the Dominicans, kind of more recently Mexican and other Central Americans, you've got pretty much every other country from all different parts of the world. There's a lot of South Asians, West Africans, Eastern Europeans, that it's not quite as... I guess the percentages are not quite as high as Queens, so we don't get any in press in terms of that. But it is really diverse. I guess the other thing that people might be surprised at is the percentage of people here that are working. Because one of the other stereotypes about the Bronx is that there are a lot of people on welfare. Or, but if you've if you've ridden the subways, gotten on the subways on either the D or the four line near, you know, near the university here in the Northwest Bronx, you see that they're packed from you know five a.m. 6 a.m., 7 a.m., people going to work. A lot of people working in, you know, all different types of areas, but a lot of them are low-wage jobs. A lot of people who work in the service industry live up here. They're not making a ton of money, but they are, I think, you know, that's it's three-quarters of the population up here is working, which is pretty comparable to the rest of the city. How do people in this part of the city compare to sort of the average New Yorker? Well, the, I mean, I guess the main difference is about this part of the Bronx, um, you know, the in terms of immigration, it's probably in line with the rest of the city. A lot of immigrants. It's a lot of young people here, a lot of children. The percentage of population that's under age 18, I think, is is close to about 35%, while the city number is about 25%. So you've got, that leads to a whole bunch of other issues. You've got school overcrowding, and you've got, you know, you need more larger apartments, two and three bedroom apartments. And there is more overcrowding, I guess you, you could say, partly because of you know, larger family size and lots of kids. And and then the other thing that is that folks are paying more of their income on rent. And, you know, they're not making as much money, but they've still got to pay the rent. So there's there's much less disposable income going around up here. So people are working. It's vibrant in that sense. But you don't have the same level of cash going around being spent in the neighborhood because people are spending most of their income on rent. And then when you add up all the other things they may have to spend money on, like health care and, and such, it's, it's people are kind of scraping to get by, I think. What is the median income around here? Uh, it's depending on, you know, from one neighborhood to the other, it varies a little bit, but it's pretty much in kind of from the about low 20s up to mid 30s is, is the median income. And that compares to what for New York on the average? It depends who you ask because they have all the different data sources. It, I, I'd say it ranges. I've seen it. Some of the data shows in the, in the mid-40s, and I've seen things saying for the area, if you c- include kind of some of the the, the nearby suburbs, it's, it's about 70000 And just out of curiosity, as somebody who lives on the Upper East Side, what are the rents like around here? And they've gone up a lot, and I think, you know, this they're still cheaper than the rest of the city. And and people who are getting priced out of places in Brooklyn and northern Manhattan and Queens are coming up here. Um, I know a whole bunch of people that have come up from East Harlem as the rents go up. But they're still you're still looking at, you know, if you can find a two-bedroom for $1,000, you can you can definitely find it, but that's that's typical as opposed to being on the high end. I'd say it's you're you're looking at stuff between 1000 and $1,200 for a two-bedroom apartment. 
you might find something for less, but it's it's if you're if you're making twenty five thousand dollars a year, that's a lot of money to spend on rent. And if you're a single parent with one or two kids, you need a two bedroom apartment. You're gonna that's that's half your income right there. What kinds of special protections do Bronx residents need, or do Northwest Bronx residents need that you guys look to provide? Yeah, I th- I think that in in especially in the current real estate market where you've got a lot of landlords, uh, new landlords kind of trying to to cut corners if if possible that if if we weren't around to highlight to this to especially to the lenders and encourage them to make the repairs that a lot of repairs wouldn't be getting made right now there would be a decent number of buildings that we've gotten the the bank out to look at and got and they've successfully convinced the owners to make the repairs and similarly we've highlighted these buildings to back to the Northwest Bronx Coalition to some of their community organizers to go out and and get some other programs working in there. Like the city has some programs where they'll go in and do what they call roof to cellar inspections and highlight every single violation in it. And they've and under this new program they've got more leverage to take the owner to court and make them do the repairs. So we've been able to help in that effort as well in terms of identifying the real distressed properties and and helping them get renovated and get some some money into them and uh, make the conditions better for the tenants who are living there. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm talking on the show today with Gregory Lobo-Jost. He's the deputy director of the University Neighborhood Housing Program. They're an organization that advocates and makes loans for decent, affordable housing in the area that surrounds Fordham University. In a few minutes, we will learn about and visit a green, affordable housing development in the Fordham area. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Gregory Lobo-Jost. Just moving even beyond uh, the Bronx, what, in your view, are the major issues facing New Yorkers in terms of housing? It's it's two. There, there's two big issues. I mean, the the first one is kind of more immediate, and that's affordability. It's a tight housing market. The what they call the vacancy rate, the number of apartments that that are that are vacant, is at I think an all time low. Definitely in the Bronx, I guess because the rents are lower, the the vacancy rate in the Bronx is the lowest in the city, which has never happened before. There's such a demand for housing that the owners are able to charge more. They're able to raise the rents you know, within the legal confines, there's, but they're still able to, the rents keep going up and incomes are not going up, especially for the lower end workers in New York. So you've got stagnating wages and you've got rising rents and people who are already paying 50% of their income on rent, which is typical in the Bronx. And, you know, what, where is that going to go? Are they going to be able to pay more of their income on rent unless their wages go up? I mean, it's it's a tricky situation. What's who's going to give in first? I mean, are are the, are the landlords going to be able to collect higher rents, or the other thing is more people are going to double up, and you know that's not without consequences. People people double up. It takes more of a toll on a building. Some of the apartments have been illegally subdivided, and that's led that that's led to even fatal situations. There was a fire in the in the Northwest Bronx um, about a year and a half ago where a firefighter jumped to his death because he was in in a room that had been illegally subdivided, and so he couldn't get access to the fire escape. So he ended up jumping and he died. So that's kind of more of an extreme example, but 
you know, this this is the type of thing that that is going on. People are dividing up the apartments so that they can afford to rent them. The other side of it is is you know the buildings are getting are getting older and older, and whether or not they're going to withstand the test of time, you know, we don't know. I mean, if a building is already a, close to a hundred years old, which a lot of them are getting to that point, you know, how much can you do the, kind of the basic, you know, everyday repairs? Is is the building going to hold up? And there's some people that think that that this is going to be a big issue in the coming years, where parts, walls, and buildings will just start falling down that's kind of a looking ahead a little bit farther that's going to be a big issue as well but right now the big issue is affordability people talk a lot about the middle class not being able to afford new york city but it's not just the middle class it's kind of the working class working poor people that are also having a really tough time right now what are some of your projections if things don't change and what do you suggest should change there there's a plausible scenario that if if nothing is done uh, New York City is going to become one of those cities where unless you live specifically in subsidized housing, you're going to have to make a lot of money to live here. And that's not really a viable option for New York, especially, it's, you know, home to immigrants. This is where people come. And if they can't afford an apartment here, unless they're not getting into subsidized housing when they first arrive. So that's going to threaten kind of the, the historical place of New York City. And then on a more practical level, are we going to have enough workers to do all of the service industry jobs? And, you know, those are those are issues you see in kind of more like resort areas. But if, if New York is kind of the exception to the rule where everything keeps on getting more and more expensive in terms of housing costs, you know, that's going to be an issue, too. Where are the working poor going to be able to live in New York City? So what we're really looking to do is how do we keep rents down from our side of it? Obviously, we're being a housing group we're not going we're not in the position to work on uh getting wages to increase so let's look at the rents why are they why do they keep going up you know there's a few reasons operating costs are way up so things like you know as we all know fuel costs are really high insurance is really high we've been working on another issue water and sewer rates keep going up if operating costs go up every year such to such an extreme the group that decides how much rents go up for all the tenants, the Rent Guidelines Board, is going to look on that and say, look, rents need to go up because owner's costs keep going up. And so that that will lead to a greater likelihood that they're going to improve larger rent hikes, which is obviously a bad thing for all the renters. So we've been working on on trying to keep some of these operating costs down, like talking to people at the city and other other groups that are working on these issues to figure out ways to keep some of these costs down. Because in the end, all the operating costs get passed on to the tenants and higher rents. And then, you know, kind of more specifically in terms of the the ways that the rent laws work, landlords can also take uh, what they call a major capital increase. If the landlord thinks, well, you're, you know, you're, you could be paying more in rent, they could decide that they're going to go in and do some work in your apartment and pass on a percentage of those costs to the tenant. And while a lot of times that's legitimate, there have been cases of where you know some of the claims have been exa- greatly exaggerated, and, and this has been documented by some some journalists. And uh, and so you know we're we're calling that there needs to be more oversight on that as well. And I should stop you here and say yeah. these are all conditions that affect only stabilized apartments, right? Right. This is just for rent-stabilized apartments. If you live in a building that has fewer than six rental apartments, you're not protected by any of these kind of rent laws. 
are all apartments stabilized that if are more than six units? Most of them are, unless they bec- they can become destabilized if they go if the rent goes over two thousand dollars a month, and it goes vacant, or if it goes over two thousand dollars a month and they check your income and you make over one hundred seventy five thousand dollars a year for two consecutive years. Then once once basically they call that like the luxury vacancy decontrol, and and then the owner can charge you whatever they like, and that's not happening in the Bronx. But one thing that is it's indirectly affecting the Bronx because as neighborhoods, primarily I guess in 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 Harlem, East Harlem, and Brooklyn, and um, and I guess even parts of Queens, where that's happening. The people that were living there can no longer afford to live there, and, and that's putting more pressure on the lower-income people to move out of those neighborhoods and come to places like the Bronx, which has put this increased demand on the lower rents that are up here. And that's led to rise higher rents up here. One of the other programs that, that we've kind of helped participate in is, is New York City. has a couple groups, including the city and, and some foundations and banks, have come together and put together an acquisition loan fund to help local nonprofits purchase buildings, be able to compete with some of the for-profit investors. So we're working with one of our neighborhood partners, Ford and Bedford Housing Corporation, to um, we're able to purchase six buildings in the neighborhood that are well-run, decent, nice buildings that have relatively low rents. And the owner of these buildings, if he had sold them to you know any investor, it could be a foreign investor, anybody, one of these groups, any of these groups, that are out buying buildings right now, they would have instantly looked at it and said, wow, this building has a lot of what they call upside potential. And we can, you know, try to get as many people to move out. We can send, you know, eviction notices to people. There's different like kind of harassment techniques to get people to leave. And then they can raise the rents a little bit more and do these ma- major capital improvements and raise the rents even more. And that would that's just kind of the start of it. And then as, as you know, you get your right people in there that they want, they're trying to get all the low-income folks out who will have very few other places to go. And instantly this building that was kind of a source of affordable housing, not through any subsidy program, but just by the fact that they had low rents, is no longer affordable to kind of your your typical kind of working-class New Yorker or Bronxite resident. How does the stuff that you're talking about in the Bronx, how does it affect all New Yorkers? I think if we want to keep New York City as kind of this diverse kind of vibrant city that it is, which I think New York prides itself on being, we need to really look at keeping it affordable for, for all different levels of, of New Yorkers with, you know, all New Yorkers with all different levels of incomes and backgrounds. And as things get less and less affordable, I think the, the viability of New York city continuing in, in this role that it's played is, is threatened. And, you know, we need to keep it as a decent place to live for people who are, you know, working at the places that kind of middle income and upper income people are going. If you're, you know, the whole economy of the city depends on workers at all different levels. And if they don't have a decent place to live, that's going to threaten some of the uh, the viability of New York. Plus, I think it's just quality of life for people of different incomes. Allowing people who work in the city to to live in the city, I think, is important. And from an environmental standpoint, too, keeping commuting times low, as long as someone can get to their job on the subway, there needs to be places in the city where where folks can work and live. Well, Gregory Lobo-Jost, thanks so much. You're welcome.
More information about the University Neighborhood Housing Program at unhp.org. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. A little later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey on today's show, Love and Politics. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, in our conversation, Gregory Lobo-Jose mentioned that many Bronx residents, as well as working-class people all over the city, are forced to live in apartments that are not only too expensive for them, but are in poor condition as well. These apartments are often in the kinds of heavily polluted neighborhoods that are associated with high levels of respiratory disease. And to add insult to injury, residents might find themselves paying higher electric and heat bills that go along with living in cheaply constructed and inefficient buildings. So it seems there's something of a disconnect between luxury green development and the people who might most benefit from greener living. Are the ones that need it the most the ones who aren't getting it? Well, that's the question behind Jacob's Place. Jacob's Place is a 63-unit housing development in the Northwest Bronx. It's named for Aston Jacobo, a Bronx community leader who died in 2002. The development, it's a partnership between the nonprofit housing providers Enterprise and the Fordham Bedford Housing Corporation, is the first green affordable housing development in the Bronx. Some of the stuff that makes Jacob's Place a more sustainable building than its neighbors isn't glamorous. It features high-efficiency boilers, Energy Star appliances, special non-harmful paint, and good insulation. But some of it is glamorous, like bamboo floors and a green roof. All of its designed, though, not only to keep the building healthy for its residents to live in, but to keep it affordable. That's because the people who live in Jacob's Place aren't the same constituency as those who live in the Solaire. John Riley is the executive director of the Fordham Bedford Housing Corporation. Most of the apartments are eligible for, are, are available to people making 60% of the median uh, in New York. So for a family of four, that's about $42,000 a year. There were seven apartments set aside for homeless families that come out of the city's uh, shelter system. And some of those came from a shelter that, that we actually uh, run. But most of the apartments are available to families, uh, lower-income working families. I visited Jacob's place, and I got a tour of some of the building's green features with Riley and his colleague Esther Yang. I am the Enterprise Frederick P. Rose Architectural Fellow working at Fordham Bedford Housing Corporation. I'm John Riley. I'm the Executive Director of Fordham Bedford Housing. Jacob's place is a a building that uh, was uh, designed and built by our housing organization. It's, It's in a vicinity where we manage a lot of more conventional apartment buildings, some of which were abandoned, some of which we bought from the city, and some of which we purchased ourselves and did renovations in. So it's an area where we have uh, a lot of other housing. And there were four vacant lots here uh, that were owned by the city. So we put together a plan to uh, build a new building on those lots that really were just filled with garbage and rats and were a problem for the surrounding neighborhood. Uh, This space is going to be the uh, uh, early childhood center in the building, and it's designed to have six classrooms. Uh, and there'll be children uh, ages about three to four and a half, just uh, pre-K, pre-kindergarten. And it's a program we hope to run as both child care and also an educational program as uh, a pre-K for children, not just from the building, but for children from the whole neighborhood. And uh, we, we expect to open probably uh, in the middle of uh, 2008 that we'll open the program up here. And just to let you know a little bit about the green products here, we're dedicated to have healthy environment, um, promoting a healthy environment for the built world, but also for our residents. So in regards to the child care center, a lot of the materials are organic materials, no VOC paint, which is, VOC is a volatile organic compound. It's um, 
a material that off-gasses certain odors that are very hazardous to children. Um, we're trying to look at, at like asthma conditions and indoor air quality conditions. So we're using materials that won't off-gas a chemical pollutant. Um, and so you'll see in a lot of the design specifications, they're starting to specify materials that have healthier like um, components to them. So we've got linoleum floors, which are made out of organic um, materials, cork. Um, it's a solidified linseed oil is what linoleum is. And so with the VOC paint um, and just the atmosphere, we're just trying to create a really healthy environment for the children. We'll take you out to the childcare facility um, playground. So again, another just really interesting playing area. I think the safety surface is made out of recycled rubber um, and obviously cautions any falls for children coming off the equipment. But it's just a really nice area that children can kind of enjoy that isn't so close to the street and in, in danger zone. It's a space we think is very valuable to the, the overall building as well because in the summertime we'll run a program here for the uh, young people that are uh, in the building. So it's, it's really a nice space for uh, uh, an amenity for the building to have. One of the green features um, in this area, besides the recycled safety surface material, um, is that our landscaping is going to be irrigated through a rainwater harvesting system that will come about later. Um, we're going to collect rainwater, obviously, uh, and gravity feed it. Um, and there's pumps as well that will irrigate the landscape up here as well as the green roof. So we're just doing all that we can to kind of maximize our natural resources. We'll take you up to the roof and show you the solar panel system and the green roof system. So what's special about this elevator? It, it's a, a very, uh, it's a, a, a different approach to the uh, mechanical systems in it, in that it uses a system of magnets. And our understanding is and our hope is that it'll use as little as 10% of the electricity that a regular uh, a conventional elevator will use. Once we get our photovoltaic panels up in order, I believe that they are also powering our elevators as well. So again, saving on energy costs as much as we can. It's amazing. We haven't been up here since um, we put this uh, down. Uh, what we've installed here on the Jacobs Roof are two major green initiatives, which is a very large green roof system, which is now beautifully red because of the season. Uh, but some advantages of the green roof is, um, one, in, in large cities we deal with the heat island effect, so a lot of the roofs are emitting heat back into the atmosphere because of its dark nature. So what we've done is covered the roof with a low-growing sedum um, to kind of avoid that heat island effect. It also slows down the stormwater from getting to the system too quickly. It'll eventually make it to the system, but we're just slowing it down so we're not taxing it during large storm surges. Um, it also adds another layer of insulation to the roof, so again, helping in clothing the building and insulating so we're um, saving on energy costs as well. And I guess the side point is that it also offers um, migratory birds a place to stop because when we're building in cities, we kind of, I don't know, disrupt the way that they would naturally live. So we're giving them a place to stop. I have yet to catch a picture of a bird up here, but hopefully I'll get to do that. Um, I'll walk you over to the solar panels um, that were installed earlier this fall. So here we've got 63 solar panels, they're 11 kilowatt 
um, system, it's an array, and they are powering the mechanical uh, ventilation systems in our building, as well as our elevators, as well as our common lighting um, in common areas. So again, things that we're trying to save um, in the long run so that whatever operating costs would have been dedicated to some of these things are now kind of distributed to other areas so that we can continue doing some of the things that we're doing. And again, the rainwater har harvesting system uh, will be set in place later on this uh, in the upcoming new year, which will irrigate both the green roof and the landscaping features downstairs in the play area. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. We're a community-sponsored organization. We're uh, so that, that makes our approach to developing the housing a little bit different. We started out at a time when our neighborhood was uh, overlooked and uh, buildings were going abandoned. And so the quality of life in the community uh, has always been a big issue for us for the whole more than 25 years we've been in operation. Father, where's his Sunday best? from WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. This has been Fordham Conversations. The show is available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and you can also listen to it on our audio archive, which is also on our website. If you have comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.